0: Nighttime on Still Waters This is NB five oh six eight one two narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways Eighth of June, Wednesday. The wind is kicking up among the branches of the ash and oaks while clouds as heavy as wet blotting paper begin to gather and there's that excitement in the air that portends change though the barometer stays level and the rooks are playing up and large spots of rain fleck the towpath And it's the time to stride across ridgeways and old greenways in seven-league boots and drink in every second of the howling night. And it's time to close the hatches and listen to the rain as it rakes the cabin roof and batters on the window by my bed. There's a blustery wind tonight that's blowing in from the west and making the trees and the bankside rushes dance. And nightfall has come, but it is yet to deepen into full night. Darkness seeps only slowly across this landscape, pooling and bleeding from the edges, the deep, quiet places. It's bat-time and owl-time, and times for those like ourselves, who finds space in the night to breathe and to think and to grow. This is the Narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting into the darkness, canal side. It's so good to see you and thank you for coming and welcome aboard. We're now at that time of year when our nights in the UK are no longer properly dark and the sun clings to our horizon going from west to east, just below the rim. A bit like a learner swimmer clinging to the poolside at the deep end. It's as if it just doesn't quite want to let go. It's a little bit dependent on where you exactly are, but I believe even as far south as London and the home counties we never move out of astronomical twilight into night-time proper. And in fact, we only just tip into that. And to the north, in Scotland and Northern Ireland, they hold on to the nautical twilight for their entire night. And the night skies here are certainly not dark. And of the three twilights that herald our nighttime civil, nautical and astronomical twilight, For the most of this month we'll experience only the lighter nautical twilight. It might not be the land of the midnight sun, of the polar climes, but it's getting there. We've had quite a lot of hot sun this week, but some fairly turbulent atmospherics have been fueling a succession of fronts, some quite stormy. The rain, when it comes, consists of great fat drops that create bubbles when they hit the water. The sort of rain that you associate with hot summers and the breaking of a heat wave. And sometimes it's even been accompanied by hail. But for the most part, we've successfully dodged the showers. And over the jubilee weekend, we found a spot that was as far from civilization as we could get. And we just read and snoozed the entire days, and hunkered down watching the weather fronts move overhead. On our first night I experimented trying to record the bats on our bat detector. And the twilight was soft and growly, with an almost constant rumble of distant thunder. There was hardly a breath of wind, and there were flying insects are plenty. These are pipistrelle, flying between the ash trees and the poplars. The yellow iris, opposite us, dimly glows pale in the gloaming. The canal is almost mirror calm, broken only by the ripples or rings created as the fish feed and stir the deeper waters beneath. The little moorhen family is nowhere to be seen. All day the parents have been fussing and shepherding their single chick, a tiny ball of sparse black fluff with a dash of red on its head. They keep close to the banksides, clambering over the knotted tangle of roots and undergrowth. They look for all the world like jungle birds. And this week the fry and larvae are active, spangling the surface of the water in tiny rings. It's as if it were a constant drizzle under blue skies. Before we left the moorings, we'd noticed that one of the cygnets had been lost. It was their second night, and they'd moved away from the nest and were sleeping somewhere else, further up the canal. And when they came back, there was only three signets rather than four. But nevertheless, the three remain and are developing nicely. And for their longer swims, the swans cover a good few miles in one day. The signets ride on their mother's back. And although fathers are also known to take this role, but so far this year I've only seen mum give the rides and they're all getting very cheeky, and the insistent demanding cheeps have become a constant oral backdrop to our lives. And the other day I was giving them some swan food from the duck hatch, and when I had finished the pen, the female was so outraged, I thought she would try to leap into the boat. I'm not totally convinced that she could, but... I didn't really want to try, as I have absolutely no idea how I could get an irate and probably frightened swan up the steps and out of the boat. And talking of which, I had a Zoom call the other day and I was just setting up when I thought I heard a rattling behind me on the stern. And thinking someone had come to visit, I turned around to find myself literally nose to beak with a perplexed looking duck. Fortunately, she just turned and waddled onto the tiller deck and then flumped rather bad-temperedly into the water. And when I remember it, it, it's actually been rather a case of going from the sublime to the ridiculous this week, having started it in a place where, to borrow from Ian McMillan, we tied up in places the map never showed us, as far off the beaten track as it was possible. Later in the week, we had three bomb detection dogs on board, and a puppy. At the end of July, the Commonwealth Games are set to be held in Birmingham, and some of the sporting venues apparently run quite close to the the large network of canals. And Donna spotted a policeman with a dog walking by and had a chat with him and they told her that they were looking for people who would allow them to come on board and use their boats for the dogs to practice in. and so dummy explosives were hidden in the study area and the three sniffer dogs and the puppy were welcomed aboard apparently donna said that two of the dogs seemed to be able to tell as soon as they were on board where it was and the, the total unfairness of all of this was that I was away at work and missed the opportunity of four very enthusiastic spaniels to say hello to and have a scruffle with. First of all, sorry if my voice is a bit funny tonight. I'm having problems with hay fever at the moment, particularly in the mornings or at night time. Apparently the storms have been stirring up all the pollen and although I don't usually suffer too badly from hay fever, I, I'm I'm suffering tonight. Anyway. Well thank you for Everybody who contacted me, it's always really lovely to hear from you and to get your updates on what's happening in your lives. And I was really pleased to hear from John Kelly, who contacted me a few weeks back, just after the Cruising the Cut video went out. And he was asking about the wooden writing box that I have that can use as a, a portable writing desk and Initially, we couldn't find the people who had made mine seem to have gone out of business, although subsequently I have found them again. But John wrote to say that he managed to get one at long last and seems to be really pleased with it. And John, it looks really similar to mine. I think you've you've got a good buy there. And shouts also out to Dino Driver and to Rita He and Carol Knight Ennis and Nancy Jean Armstrong and Thank you also to Joe Brown and Rosario Aquero-Martin. Thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate them and they do make a lot of difference. And I, I really can't tell you how amazing it was to actually hear from one of our listeners. Tony Rutherford from over in Kentucky in the United States got in touch with me using the voicemail option on the NOSW pod website just by clicking on the microphone icon. So please do if if you want to, to talk to me rather than write. And Tony was asking about the equipment that I use to record the sounds that supplement the podcasts. And he then also recalled his younger days in high school when he would listen to the WABC New York station under the covers late at night. It was truly lovely to hear from you, Tony. And I think that you have the most marvellous voice and accent and you really need to do some recording yourself. And Tony also pointed out something that some of the other listeners from outside the UK have mentioned to me, particularly those in the States, and that the use of centigrade rather than Fahrenheit when I'm talking about temperatures can be a little bit confusing. And I I do really appreciate that difficulty, you know. I am thinking of ways that might mitigate it. Just for your information, this week's temperatures have been round about 22 degrees centigrade highs and about 9 to 10 degrees centigrade for the nighttime lows. And so this roughly equates to around about 70 degrees Fahrenheit high and a 48 degrees low. And Lee Thomas also got back in touch. And if you remember, Lee lives in a 200-year-old cabin, 8,000 feet up in the foothills of the Colorado mountains. And she sent me a photograph taken from her door on the 1st of June, showing three inches of snow, and it was still falling at that time. And I asked her if it was causing much harm to the new life that was emerging in her spring. And she wrote that apart from the hummingbirds, which can or who can find these conditions difficult to survive in, although she did also say that you can get heated bird feeders for them, which is brilliant. Most life, she said, generally does okay. And she went on to write, and again, I, I hope you don't mind me, Lee, reading because um, it, it's lovely. The sun made a tentative reappearance this afternoon so the dogs and I took our walk up the mountainside across from my house. There were the usual assortment of ground squirrels and an adult rabbit near the horse sheds, and I was also glad to see the baby rabbit that has been moving around independently of its mother for about a week. Farther up the hill there were four mule deer does, happily nibbling on the green grass and shrubs. Hopefully none of the deer or elk chose last night to give birth but even if they had, I bet their babies would weather the storm. There was a fresh breeze smelling wonderfully of wet pines, and the birds were singing what seemed to be happy songs. Thank you, Lee, that's lovely. Another listener from America got in touch, and that's Andrew, who lives in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Andrew, and I'm so glad that you are enjoying the podcasts. And over on the other side of the globe, over in Australia, Lynette Powell wrote to me from a Melbourne that's just beginning its winter. and Thank you so much for your kind words, Lynette, and I am really glad that you're enjoying the podcast. Hello and a shout out to Alan Whiteside, and I'm really pleased that you can go through the episodes now in order, and I hope that you're enjoying them. And it was also really lovely to hear from Margaret again. Thank you f- so much for getting back in contact. And Margaret was asking after the Widgeon. The Widgeon featured in a couple of episodes, I think they're in February and March, where we suddenly appeared this solitary stranger of a bird. And like all good mythic creatures, he suddenly and without fanfare, just, seemed to have slipped away and i'm not even too sure when it was around about the time when the ducks were beginning to pair off and move out and one day he was here and the next he was gone and i suspect that he felt the wind and its call and headed back northeast possibly to find a mate and finally, but certainly not least, thank you so much to Christine Burns for leaving such a wonderful review on Apple Podcasts. I was really touched by your words, Christine, and thank you. And I, I haven't properly thanked you for it, so it's so a thank you. And also thank you to Laurie Troutman as well for your lovely words and the review that you posted on the NOSW pod review page. Again, thank you so much. They really do make a difference. And I and I know I sometimes bang on about the algorithms and I don't understand them at all. But on a very personal level, I find your words very sort of touching. And I, I am really pleased and heartened that, that you are enjoying these rather sort of odd podcasts that, that don't really fit into any category at all. Uh, I enjoy doing them and it really is thrilling to know that you are also enjoying them. So thank you. I used to see him nearly every day. He seemed to live in his garden. It was a garden that grew bits of machinery, bloomed with dismantled lawnmowers, discarded gardening implements, rusting, odd piles of metalwork and glass and wood. Gleanings from house and garden clearances. That's not to say that his garden was a mess. His bird tables were always very well stocked. His front garden bench well tended and used. It was just that, as some gardeners find expression in their delight of life in cultivated roses or banks of riotous blooms, he found his expression for life in other ways. His back garden was a rank of workshops from which Radio 2 would blast on summer days and a light would burn late into the winter nights. Oh, his garden wasn't unkempt. It was just kempt in a rather different manner to most other gardens in the village. He didn't have a job, and his family were dirt poor, if I understand that expression correctly, but also somehow dirt rich. He would be someone who people would describe in a dismissive, pitying tone as having no real idea of the value of money. But I think that that was exactly it. He understood its value precisely. "'far better than those who cast their judgments upon him, "'and because of it he was just not held in its grip as they were. "'And he spent his days and often long into the nights "'repairing bits of broken machinery. "'He could never resist a broken lawnmower "'and building things.' Largely self-taught, he would strip down and coax the refuse and detritus of others back into usefulness, often accompanied by an impressively rich range of bellowed Anglo-Saxonisms. I once took my lawn-mower around him to see what was wrong with it. He knelt down, took the covers off it, scowling for a while, He had a continual scowl that gave his face a dark look about it, not helped by the customary smeared streaks of engine oil on it. But it was not a grumpy scowl, which people meeting him for the first time tended to assume. It was just the way his face folded when he was thinking. And he sucked in air between his teeth, And this, I imagine, was probably the sum total of his formal apprenticeship in the trade. It's what all garage mechanics do when you ask them if they can do any job, from topping up the windscreen washers to a complete engine and transmission change. And grabbing a handful of wiring in his large fist, he loudly declared to the startled starlings just about to ravage the bird feeder, "'That's just safety wiring. We can do without that!' and promptly pulled it all out. And if I didn't see him, I would certainly hear him. He was the type of man who took advantage of every square millimetre of his footprint that life allotted to him. A great bearded, often red-faced barrel of a man whose shadow was as large and as colourful and as as loud as his body. His voice carried well, rolling down the village streets, echoing off the walls of the houses that lined the avenue, out onto the neighbouring fields. It was a voice slightly rounded by a Warwickshire brogue. And he was always very generous, sometimes perhaps a little too generous he'd always offer advice even if it wasn't asked for there's always a much better easier cheaper way to do a job and often in fairness he was right and i could never really work out whether or not he could read and i tried not to put him into any situations where reading was necessary but instruction manuals were a complete waste of time for him and treated with much scorn and derision. For a while he had a friend with whom he spent most of his days. He was a very small, round man with a continually startled, rather owl-like face, and who, for some reason, had green hair. As far as I know, no one ever asked why, it was just accepted that he had green hair. And my neighbour and his friend threw themselves into any job with such boyish enthusiasm and vociferous debate. Together, whatever the problems, after throwing the right number of profanities at it, they would find a solution. I watched them once cut down a tree It was a youngish sycamore that was about to bring down the village telegraph wires. There's a small tree. You don't need to get tree surgeons who will charge you the earth to do that. So they would cut it down on the condition that they could have the wood. And the garden in which they had to fell it was quite a tight one. However, fortune had it that one of the fence panels bordering the garden had been blown down by the gales that had swept through a few months earlier. And through some mental arithmetic that seemed to border on black magic, they decided that if felled correctly, the tree would just fit through that gap. Satisfied with their calculations, they went off to get their equipment. And when I say equipment, What I mean is a large chainsaw and a coil of rope. Now, Tony Bell, if you're listening, for the sake of your sanity and peace of mind, please skip this next section. So the outlying branches were cut down by an ingenious method of clambering up the tree as far as he could go. But the problem was it had been raining earlier and the trunks and branches were slick with wet. And my friend's shoes... No safety footwear here had seen far better days. Their soles were pastrami-thin, and they noticed that the uppers were coming away at the welts. And the smooth soles kept slipping, so he had to cling to a branch with one hand, while swinging the chainsaw as high over his head as he could get it in this wild dervishing movement as a storm of twigs and branches and dark oaths came crashing down on top of him. However, at last, all was done and the trunk was ready to come down. So a rope was tied to it, and his little friend with the green hair was instructed to pull with all your strength as I cut. The initial cuts were made. The small friend, by this time, was frantically smoking roll-up cigarettes and frequently having to sit down on a nearby garden table to steady his nerves and his face taking on an even more startled expression than normal. Then came the final cuts, and with slipping feet the chainsaw bit deep, and at a bellowed, Now! the rope tightened, and a strange tug-of-war began. Then, with a bang, the trunk broke free, and, would you believe it? it fell precisely and exactly through the small gap left by the fallen fence panel. So I think you could call him and his wife village characters, characters that could equal any of those who echo and chime through the corridors of shared village memories. Like the man who went to bed when he was 50 and never left it, even though he was well into his nineties when he died. Or the two brothers who fell out so severely that they never spoke or even acknowledged each other's existence ever again, but that their wives concocted some sort of semaphore system and would chat to each other over the rooftops from their bedroom windows. Oh, how we love these characters, the sly tricksters and the lovable rogues, and how we laugh at their wily wit over the townies and their obsession with bureaucracy and trivial rules, and how we admire stories of their resilience against all odds, of their cunning and petty criminality. Poaching a rabbit or two on the landed estates was a strike for our freedom, too. Cocking a snook, At the bloated, hang-jowled, gout-ridden authorities. They are our personal, localised Robin Hoods. The shout of colour in a grey world. But when they live a few doors down, When yet another teetering pile of jumble Appears by the gate, When a lack of awareness of personal space or lack of social graces cause awkwardness every time you meet. It can be a very different story. And in older times, families like this were often protected and watched over by the community that was the village. They were known. They grew up together, laughed and yes, probably laughed at, drank, argued, and survived the seasons together. They were understood. There were perhaps a better place for them then. Perhaps. Today it's not so easy. The village I'm thinking of has increased with new buildings, bringing in a whole new community. A community based on social lives, clubs, parties, hobbies lifestyles, not organically grown from the rootstock of a predominantly settled population. People who don't fit in, the ones who live messily on our borders, are always a challenge. And they can appear intimidating, they upset the tidy patterns of our lives, they fill a sky full of birdsong with the jarring roar of an engine being tested to its limits and the limits of the neighbours around. Characters are great in stories. They're not so easy to live with. And it took me a long time to get to know the man. The man behind the voice and the plaster. The big personality in the big body who would yell out to you when you were so far down the street that you could barely see him. I quickly learned that his questions were not meant to be answered. They were statements that could unlock a wealth of sometimes difficult-to-follow knowledge. A lifetime of being looked down upon, and the butt of everyone's humour shapes the heart and spirit of a person. He had incredibly thick skin and not just his creased and weather-browned epidermis but a resilience, or perhaps it was simply an acceptance. But I found he also could be hurt very easily. An important lesson I learnt from him was about the give and take of everyday conversation. I soon realised that More often than not, he would always try to end a conversation or greeting with a humorous remark or a bon mot. Admittedly, quite often they were not entirely humorous or easy to understand, but I recognized in him a strategy that I had also learned to deal with the awkwardness I felt and still feel in social interactions. Try to use humor. Be funny. Let them leave with a laugh. And here as a man cut from the same cloth as me. Our first interactions took on the aspect of a rather strange jousting match, each trying to have the last word, the last joke, the last laugh, only it wasn't about laughter. And sometimes I read irritation and annoyance in his eyes and body. And at other times, it was more sadness and defeat, or or even just simply confusion, like watching a stand-up comedian dry up in the middle of a gig. That was the best lesson he taught me. Sometimes, quite often in fact, laughter at another person's joke is a much better and more precious gift than to leave them with a joke. It took me a while to unlearn my defence strategy and to be brave enough not to have that last word, but to laugh or to give a spontaneous thumbs up or an affirming, yeah, you're right there. And it gave me so much joy too watching him, still smiling, shaking his head, turning from his gate and walking back up to his worksheds. Someone laughing with him, not at him. Why did it take me so long? I wrote this a few years back. The man with the voice wipes his nose with the back of his hand. He always wipes his nose with the back of his hands. They're good hands. Hands that can be turned to almost anything. And when our old boiler was dragged out of the kitchen, weeping oily water onto the linoleum, he came with his sack barrow. It will shift anything, Israel. And he took it home with him and later we took down the old metal window frames and propped them up in his front garden like teepees made out of glass he knew a man who would pay good money for stuff like that it was for what he called his me-mum's fund he was to pay for his mother who had been taken into a nursing home in a nearby town and now he looks down the village street a damp, chilly wind eddies and buffets the drear sky. He scratches his head. She kept saying she wanted to go, you know, to be with me dad and that. But he leaves unsaid the aching truth we both know. He didn't find it easy, letting her go. A few weeks ago, she had a blockage. She couldn't go to the toilet, it just kept coming out of her mouth. He shakes his head as if to fling away a memory that won't leave. No, no, it's better she's gone. We stare down at the ground. A circle has been completed. He has cared and protected the one who for so long cared for and protected him wiped his schoolboy tears and patched his skinned knees. And it strikes me that, like the hawthorn, the petals of love can withstand the severest winters. They'd been together and said their goodbyes. It was yester afternoon when she slipped away. She wanted to be with Dad. It weren't right her being on her own like that. And when I got home, on the radio, they played mum and dad's favourite song. Twice. His face creases into a smile. It was like dad was telling me, Don't worry boy, I've got her now. He doesn't say anything more. He cannot say anything more. Nor does he need to. Love and hawthorn blossoms do not need words. This is the Narrowboat Erica signing off for the night and wishing you a very restful, peaceful night. Good night. Temperature outside. 11 degrees inside 25 degrees humidity 54% dew point 9 degrees wind direction west southwest wind strength 16 miles per hour Barometric pressure, one thousand and twenty point three, rising. Cloud cover, ten percent. Cloud ceiling, none. Precipitation, one point zero two millimeters. Moon phase, ninety. Point two per cent waxing gibbous day length sixteen hours forty two minutes sunset twenty one twenty eight sky casting four forty five